Warning, the following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Coffee with the Johns. Mic check, mic check, one, two. Wow. Um, <laughs> God, I can't make a joke without you guys being like, oh, we're good. Oh, no, you don't wow. need to do that. Like, damn. Wow. Like what the, like the DJs do. Like, one, two. Even but you're not, you're not a DJ, though. I look like one. <laughs> yes, yeah. you do look scratched. Um, March 26, 2021. Welcome to Coffee with the Johns. If you have not joined us before, this is a show where we cover... All of the breaking news and headlines that affect your business, real estate investing, and help you make sense of the madness that is and 2021. Yes, John is drinking the right coffee this morning. We made sure of that. And then and he tried to blame me. He's like, yeah, because you can't read. Thanks, like, honey, I'm for not caring. The, I'm not the Nobody one else cares about coffee. me here. With that being said, uh, some of the topics we're going to cover today, we're going to cover how the new tax plan is, uh, Biden tax plan is going after small businesses, how the government is pretty much, uh, in my opinion, declaring war on real estate investors, and a lot of other interesting news that's affecting the San Antonio and Texas, it's affecting real estate throughout the country. And some really interesting business news. And uh, obviously, a lot of it's got to do with politics. So with that being said, I'm your host, John Barbera. And with me, as always, is the co-host, Mr. John Barr. The better looking. Sure. Um, how's it going, sir? Good. Good week? Yeah. yeah. Busy Good. week. Yeah, busy week. Good weather, except for one day. It was rainy in Jersey, but... Finally, it's like normalizing around the like 70, 80s. The sun's coming out more, less rain, getting green out from the storm. Everything's coming back to life. A couple of plants died, but a lot of them actually came back pretty well. Well, I mean, it's Texas, so it's not, you know, it's weeds. So, I mean, that shit just fucking, you can't kill that crap. So, all of your plants are weeds. Yeah, all these, what they call trees here. You know, we, in New York, we just cut them down with our lawnmowers. I'd but, love to see you cut a, a, live oak, <laughs> a 50-year-old live oak down with a lawnmower. <laughs> But uh, we wanted to kind of get started with uh, some of the stuff that we've been doing here uh, within our business. So we just picked up a, a nice little package deal of four properties. And we're, they're obviously, they're going to be rental properties. And one thing that we found very interesting is before we would list it on the MLS, the MLS would send it out to pretty much syndicate it everywhere. But now Zillow is charging you to have a listing on there so yep. you list our property so you want to just go well, ahead I, and I list, explain I that. listed one uh, a couple weeks ago and uh i listed i look at the comps and i was like well let me push these a little bit see what we can do the comps were like 1350 i was like let me see if i can get 1400 there's no inventory put it on the mls and had like two showings over like two weeks it's like oh man i really overshot this this is gonna suck to get this thing rented because I mean it's sitting there vacant. There's it's not producing income and there's a mortgage against it. And uh I get on Zillow and I'm like, that's not on Zillow. Like, huh, I'm not seeing the analytics there. I didn't know what was going on. And then it says activate listing for $9.99 a week. I was like, oh, Zillow makes you freaking pay now? Like, damn. So that's so it wasn't on the internet. It was just the MLS, just to agents. Like you couldn't find it. I mean, you can find it on realtor.com, but who searches for rental properties on realtor.com? Yeah. And uh, as soon as I paid that nine ninety nine, 
I, my inbox, my phone just started blowing up. And like I raised the price because I had lowered the price on the MLS down to 1350. Because uh, it had been taking so long. I was like, shit, this sucks. So then I put it down to 1350, still really no showings. And then like two days later, I found the Zillow listing and or the Zillow thing. And then I put paid for it, put it on the MLS and it just, my phone blew up. My email inbox blew up of people wanting to do it. Like the Zillow thing started request, 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 request. And I bumped the price back up to 1400 on that. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And then I had somebody find it through there and I sent them and like within basically 36 hours of being on the, uh, on Zillow had a good tenant qualified income, everything verified through them. They went through the background check on Zillow and was good to go. And, uh, so that was just like, Oh my God. Zillow's well, and, and that's, that's really what you and I were talking about at first. We were like, damn it. You know, there goes Zillow charging and everything, but at the same time, the reach that you get on Zillow you have to. is tremendous. And then it's one of the things, somebody like you mentioned it, some other people mentioned it, that I'm surprised it took them this long to do. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cause if you price it right, especially here in San Antonio, like dude, gone, like it was rented and it was, it was super. And then it's also, okay, not 10 bucks a week. But then I look at it like, well, every time I've listed with an agent or like you're paying a half of your first month's rent anyways, I save my half, but I'd still lose at 1400, 350 bucks. Yeah. So you're still there almost, what's that? 10, nine, eight, nine weeks that, or you'd get that break even being listed on Zillow two months worth. So, and then we had a second property from this package deal I put on the MLS and I put that sucker on the MLS and within 12 hours we had a tenant at the 1400 of another property is just like my god and he went through the whole program had everything because he'd obviously already applied through zillow and paid for the application through that so when you go through zillow the tenant has to pay for the background check right. i think it's like 30 bucks or something like that but i'm pretty sure at that point they can go to multiple houses and just submit that application over and over and over again yeah and it's actually pretty thorough i was i wasn't mad at what information that it pulled and gave me uh, I still had them fill out a check form because there's authorization to reach out to prior landlords in there that I do like. Uh, and that information is in there, but it made it so much simpler to where I, I had a tenant want to give me like the, uh, like 60 bucks for the process and the application. But afterwards I was too busy. It was like, you know what? Just keep the money, go to Zillow, fill out the application through there. I'll get it. So that way I don't have to go through putting all the information, do the verifications and stuff like that. You do it. And then I just gave her the 60 bucks back. I was like, I don't, I'm not trying to get rich off of. No, of course. $60. I mean, a $60 application fee is nothing. It's just, it's to your point, you know, the, the convenience that Zillow provides and then the reach that Zillow provides. And then like, was ridiculous. like you talked about before, you know, one of the biggest benefits from Zillow is the fact that you can, you have you you bypass the agents because if you list on the MLS now you have an agent representing a renter right so yeah. that that's a fee that goes to them where now it's like the renter just comes straight to you yeah it you really know? it really was quite quite convenient and like I know here in Texas we have a massive housing shortage and like everybody's moving here um that could be one of the first topics but uh yeah go ahead it was just like we have a very shortage of demand to where like you just put something in the market if it's good clean it's like it's gone yeah like and to the point like where we priced both of these houses higher than what the comps were on the mls but then now i'm also thinking like so now how do you get comps for your rental prices because nobody's listing on the mls anymore zillow doesn't give you the ability to backdate to see what things rented for yeah so it's like i just throw a number out there and guess well i mean i 
I don't think it's like that either, right? There is a process where what we'd like to do is we look at what is on the market. So yeah, you're not going to see what's been rented, but you see what's available. Yeah. So when we start doing at least that analysis and we see, all right, what is our competition actually even look like? Yeah. I mean, you have and to you're seeing that, that there is no competition. There is no properties on the market. This is why we listed that property uh, Friday morning ish. And that day, somebody already reached out, came to look at it that afternoon and it was done, you know, it, for that property. On, that was this week, dude. Friday. It wasn't last week. Oh, that was this week. That was like, I don't Tuesday. Know why that was like Tuesday. Or like to Wednesday. me, it's always Fridays. Yeah, like we, we close on these properties on Tuesday. Yeah. I put the listing. You went and took pictures of the property Wednesday. Wednesday morning. We and listed I put it, it. I listed it. And then Wednesday afternoon, you showed it. And yeah. I had a confirmed qualified tenant that night. Yeah. And That's what I'm the, saying. Like, but the same reason, like you look at what's available in the market, what's, yeah. you know, what, when you, we looked at the radius and you look at what's available and there's nothing available. Like, well, there you go. I well, mean, that's what's still even crazy. It's like there was a three bedroom, two bath, 200 square feet larger. This is a three, one thousand square feet. And it was literally for 1450. So I was like, oh, we're a little cheaper than that 1400. And the second I listed that thing, just flooded with stuff. I was like, oh my God. Well, people uh, like us. Well, this guy did. It, it was funny. He really checked, uh, us, checked yeah, all our stuff out. He looked us up online and social media. He's like, oh, I like what you guys do. And I was like, and that's why I tell people it helps to have an online presence. Yeah. Um, but one of the articles I could yeah. put on here, like as far as like who's like moving here and why we have such a massive shortage, it was an article from CNBC and like it was literally called the Texas boom. Uh, the governor economic development and tourism office said in September that there's been a tremendous increase in companies reaching out since the pandemic hit with 237 relocations or expansion projects currently in the works. And this article was dated this week. And so this is still going on. Then like they said, even though the Texas freeze happened, it hasn't put a dent in people wanting to move to Texas as an Oracle moved its headquarters to Austin, Texas last year. Tesla is also building a new gigafactory there and Apple will house its second largest campus in Texas in the capital city. The big tech influence has raised chatter about Texas potentially becoming a business hub that could rival Silicon Valley. CBRE and Charles Schwab relocated their headquarters from California to Dallas area in the recent months, and Hewlett Packard Enterprises are heading to Houston. Texas has also attracted wealthy individuals like Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, Dropbox CEO Drew Houston, and Palantir co-founder Joe Longsdale. But it's not just big business and wealthy who are moving to Texas in 2020. In 2020, Texas added more residents than any other state. So and. We also have uh, the NASDAQ that was talking about relocating to Texas as well. Um, what I don't know if you said, but it was a, either, I want to say it was Goldman Sachs or one Goldman of, Sachs. What did I say? Goldman Sachs. Same thing. No. <laughs> Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I was like, no, <laughs> Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs. <laughs> is uh also thinking about you know relocating from their headquarters and all that and moving i what mean i believe yeah well it's also one of the things they're talking about like trying to tax every transaction that they do and to try to raise revenue in new york and they just straight up said you do that we're gone like they're you can tell like they're already on the brink of losing a lot of big people so they got to really step lightly of what they do and what they go after well uh, on that note i actually have a article here that was sent to me by uh Director Dre, and it's New York City billboard rips Biden's proposed tax hike for small businesses, saying not on our watch. New York put that up there? Yeah. Uh, well, 
a, a billboard in New York City. New York didn't put it up, but there's a billboard in New York City. I'm surprised um, they didn't rip it down. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised that it's even up. But you have uh, HM Manufacturing President Nicole Walter warned the tax hikes would be a really bad call. We're just getting out of COVID lockdowns and it's hurting small businesses more than ever. So raising taxes would be the worst possible situation. Then you have uh, Job Creators Network, a small business advocacy organization. They're the ones that actually put up the billboard. And it says, the billboard says this, Biden wants to raise taxes on small businesses. And continues, hell no, not on our watch. It also directs readers to the website dedicated to tracking the number of jobs Biden's policies have put at risk, according to according to them, to the Job Creator Network. So, well, I mean, that's one thing I, I love when it's like, oh, tax the rich, tax the wealth, tell, tax the big corporations. Like, who do you think supports small businesses? Like, you start taxing all these big corporations, they stop investing yeah. in R&D. They stop spending. They stop giving raises because their money is now going to the government. Or it's like, you're going to have a trickle-down effect of that. Or they say, oh, the trickle-down doesn't affect of wealth. Okay, debatable, but the trickle down effect of taxes will impact. Yeah, like exactly. you start taxing four hundred thousand dollar people, it's like uh, their discretionary income. Uh, they start stop spending. They stop going to small boutique businesses that are small businesses. You just suck that money out of the economy and throw it into the conglomerate of the government. Yeah, it's going to disappear and it's not going to go anywhere. And that's where I, I love the tax the rich thing. And we've had several conversations about it. It's like okay, wealthier people pay more than and then somebody doesn't make as much i agree with that but when you start taxing people like like they're talking about doing it's like you're just gonna suck money out of the economy in a massive way so i mean it, it's 100 true and like i like that they're attack they're attaching it to job statistics of what's going on with the new administration because like immediately day one when he canceled all those gas leases in the pipelines like there was 20 or forty thousand jobs that were just canceled and lost yeah i mean the thing was what i find kind of ironic is that they they uh, they criticize the businesses for doing what the government does the government gets into shit prints a fuck ton of money and then oh okay we're gonna tax the people make them pay for it you understand let, let the people take care of those bills and all of our terrible policies and what do big companies do the same exact thing you raise taxes you tax them more you do all these things you're causing these companies to say the same thing. We're going to increase the cost of our, our goods. We're going to, instead of giving these raises, we're not going to give those raises. Instead of hiring more people, we're not going to hire more people because now our expenses went way the hell up. Like you, fight, you fire one person, so now instead of having three people to do this job, and it's a three-person job, it's like, well, either I fire you all and eliminate you, or I fire one of you and two of you have to pick up slack for three. Yeah, so now quality of life goes down the toilet in those companies because now one person's having to do the job of three. And probably for the same pay, you know, I mean, that's the stuff that I, I would love to be able to sit down with these people and just ask them, like, explain to me, where does this make sense to you? Because I'm curious, right? Yeah, are we missing something? Like, I'm, I'm really curious on that. Like, are it's we? A, it's a good fit. They won't do that. They'll, 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 they're, they're good people. They wouldn't do that thing. Oh, they're ethical. Yeah, and the, the thing is, their... like, what they're trying to cater to is the more uneducated, lower class people that, um, the lower income people that read the headlines and they're like, tax the rich? Hell yeah, screw those people. You know, these rich people, these fat cats, screw them, all this. You are the one that's actually getting screwed by this. 
because now you got to pay those inflated prices. You're the one that's probably going to get fired. You're the one that's going to take the, the brunt of all that. Yeah. Now, what I do believe is like we should get some tax reform where it's like if you're going to give tax benefits, tax credits to a large corporation, how do you guarantee trickle down by making those tax credits tied to growth of company and not to stock buybacks and to big uh, payouts to the executive staff? Yeah, I agree right there. Like you limit those things. Where does look track? Where does the cash go? Yeah. These benefits they're getting. It's like you have the the thing that like backfired on them when they were going to. Uh, we talked about this last week of making corporate executives pay public because they thought, oh well, if the public sees that, they're gonna feel bad. They're gonna get angry, so they'll bring their executive compensation down. It was like now nah. that all yeah. became a, a competition of who's getting paid more to work at certain companies and look at their stock prices so they can argue, I deserve a $35 million a year salary. Like there's something that you can actually attack yeah. and say, no, no, no. If you're getting these benefits, you need to pay less than this, or you need to pay your bottom line workers X number of dollars or something like that. Control that, not just say, we're just going to tax your income so the government can have it and do as they see fit. Because we did print a ton of money this last year. Oh, yeah. And some of it obviously necessary, some of it debatable and where that all went. But <laughs> so I do, do agree that like, yeah, we do need to pay for that at some point and bring down the debt levels. But that's not what they're talking about doing. Yeah. Like they were, they're pa passed all this money, printed all this money. And now they're talking raise taxes to, so they can borrow and print more money for a $2 trillion so, infrastructure plan. What's funny when you say, you know, whether that money was necessary, you know, is debatable and all this. Um, uh, what's his Sanders? His thing is like, you know, X amount of the population lives below the poverty line. They live paycheck to paycheck. They have no savings. All of this. True. Stats back it. True. Yet stimulating the sneaker economy. It's, in <laughs> it's interesting to see where Americans are spending their stimulus checks. A lot of these people are living paycheck to paycheck because they're choosing to live paycheck to paycheck. Now, I'm not, now don't freak out and have your, you know, panties all twisted up. I'm not saying everybody. Some people do have it really hard and they, their only option is to live paycheck to paycheck. But what I'm talking about is this other percentage. So the new, newly somewhat rich, by $1,400 anyway, are buying sneakers and apparel according to the data from Bank of America Global Research. Combined spending on apparel and athletic footwear jumped 20% year over year uh, for the week ending in March 13th. Want a, reason com a recent comparison about uh, how about the fact that with the same parameters, that spending was up only 13% a week prior. So a week prior, it was only up 13% year over year, and it jumped up to 20% as soon as the stimulus checks started hitting people's bank accounts. And then you have this... Uh, company called mojo.com poll uh polled some people and they say if i can i'd also like to pay off my credit card debt it's small and maybe get ahead on utilities and phone accounts if i can i also like to do it but most of the people are spending it on crap they're not spending it on their debt. They're not spending it on their rent. They're not spending it on no, any of that. They're, they're gambling in places like sneakers. They're gambling in Bitcoin. They're gambling in the GameStop mega mania for uh, chasing what's hot and what's not. These NFTs that are just like everybody's coming out with anything for these NFTs. And it's just like 
that's where the money, the, I think a lot of the money is going when it's like, yeah, when you just dump money to people that aren't used to having it, like their lifestyle goes up for a short period of time and they spend it on things that just on commodities, the spender, spender nation. That's exactly consumer nation is what the United States is. You give consumers money. They're not going to save. They're not going to invest. They're going to go consume it and buy stuff that doesn't the, actually advance their life. And the, the thing, the biggest point with all of this is that you have, you know, Sanders and and that other lady, um, the one that's one seventeen hundred Indian, yeah. All saying we gotta help the poor, we gotta help the low income, we gotta help. But you are seeing that you giving them money does absolutely nothing to help them. What these people are lacking is education, is access to the resources that can help them understand where to better spend the money because a lot of people are spending it because it's like, I can't say the lack the resources to get it. Like go on YouTube nowadays and you can find everything you'd ever want to find. Yeah. And then it might be the resourcefulness, but a lot of people need to be shown that there's other possibilities out there, right? That they can, because a lot of people, I believe look at it more from the angle of like, you know, this is how life has been. This is how my parents grew up. My grandparents, it's like, this is just what it is. So I might as well just own it and live my life this way. Right, where it's like, no, you can actually change your life and live better than this, but you have to make that decision. You have to be willing to make that choice and make those sacrifices of not buying the new sneakers that provide absolutely no value to you. So it's very interesting because, to your point, you know, we've printed over six trillion dollars or thereabouts since last year, and now with the new proposal that Biden has with the tax plan, it can cost anywhere from two to four trillion to roll it out all to maybe generate $2 trillion over the next 10 years. I'm like, where are you guys? Who the hell is running your economy, like your economics? Who's giving you this data? Because it's like, how does this Well, not- it's also one of the things that they've now seen for several years that the governments can run at massive deficits and it doesn't affect the overall economy currently. Yeah. And, but it's one of those like, it can't go on like that forever. But no administration is going to say, we need to cut back spending. We need to cut back because we know there's going to be economic hits. It's like the quantitative easing thing that like once they lowered rates to zero and the world got used to cheap money, it's like, oh God, we raised it a half a point. And then it sees massive repercussions across the economy where like now they're, they're trying to force inflation any way they possibly can to get to a point where they can reset kind of that debt load and raise interest rates again. Yeah, and then you also have the bond market that's calling, uh, supposedly they're calling the Fed's bluff saying, you will raise interest rates as soon as you get some level of inflation because you're scared to death that inflation gets out of control. Yeah. So they're like, you will raise interest rates, even though the Fed is saying we won't raise interest rates at least until like 2023, the market is more saying like, no, we believe that you will raise interest rates before then. You know, because we're starting to see inflation really creep up in a lot of areas. And even though you keep changing the metrics of what inflation, how you gauge inflation and what that even means, it's still a fact that, you know, inflation is still happening. It's happening in the housing market. It's happening in the transportation industry. The transportation industry is getting destroyed right now because of high gas prices, high oil. Well, and then also like... Uh, they're having problems too with the fact that there's shipping containers are there's plenty of shipping containers around the world. They're like, I was re- had an article a long time ago about this. I don't think we ever covered it. It's like, there's plenty of shipping containers around the world. They're just in the wrong place during uh, this whole pandemic and where they all got shifted to where like they got stuck in other places, not back in China. So it's caused like shipping costs to absolutely skyrocket 
because they're trying to get these containers back. Like right now, we're trying to get a dumpster for one of our projects. And uh, the guy reached out and asked him, usually they're 24-hour turnaround, if I, or sometimes even 12. Hey, I need a dumpster at this address. Can you get it there? Yep, it'll be there in the morning. And it's there. Well, he's like, man, I can't get it there tomorrow. Um, I mean, maybe Saturday or uh, for sure I can get it on Monday. We're actually owed 40 more containers or on back order for 40 more containers from China right now. It's like we're short supplied because uh, they're trying to keep up, but they can't get these things till now causing more problems is this uh, ever given sh- ship that has been stuck in the Suez Canal. Did, did you meant to say ship or shit? ship it's oh, called the okay. ever ever given ship mega oh. container i mean it's one that carries all those like you see parked outside like bit massive ports mm-hmm. that have like thousands and thousands of those massive huge ships well apparently this giant ship somehow ran aground in the suez canal and it is causing an estimated 400 million dollars an hour an hour in global trade slowdowns of like how much that like how much business has gone through that canal because i think it connects uh europe and asia without around africa and having to go all the way down africa coming all around and going back up so you have a lot of businesses going through there so the stranded mega container vessel ever given the suez canal is holding it up an estimated 400 million an hour in trade based on approximate values of goods that are moved through the suez canal every day Lloyd's values the canal's westbound traffic at roughly 5.0 billion a day and eastbound traffic at around four and a half billion a day. So $9.6 billion of goods travel through that canal every single day. The blockage is further stressing an already strained supply chain. Many companies continue to struggle with supply chain congestion and delays stemming from the pandemic. There's no doubt the delays will ripple through the supply chain and cause additional challenges. So now here it's like the Suez Canal which separates Africa from Asia is one of the busiest trade routes in the world, with approximately 12% of total global trade moving through it. Energy exports with like liquefied natural gas, crude oil, and refined oil make up five to 10% of global shipments. So that those stats right there is like 12% of global trade goes through that one canal. And now it's stopped because you see the pictures and there's this massive ship that's just stuck sideways in the middle of the ship. And it's one of the things you can't just grab it. And it's like, Oh, let me just straighten you out there. They're saying that they're like, well, it's could take weeks for us to get this thing out because you have the rushing water going against it. And then they're trying to dig out from underneath this ship. I saw a picture that's like, it's just the very front of the ship and you can see the, like the, the bow of it and you have an excavator next to it and excavators aren't small pieces of equipment. And this thing just looks like an itty bitty little ant side. Like you just see like the very bottom of the ship and you know, this thing goes like way up and they have this massive uh, excavator next to it. That's like extended way out into the water, trying to pull dirt away from it. Of, like uh, how yeah. big this ship is. But, uh, According to the the World Shipping Council, the Suez Canal daily vessel throughout capacity is 106. If the canal is closed for two days, it will then take two additional days after reopening to clear the backlog. The longer the delay, the longer it will take to move out the vessels. Chinese manufacturers are responding to the tremendous global orders for or, or, uh, sorry. Chinese manufacturers are responding to the tremendous global orders for their goods. Pandemic lockdowns have fueled consumer demand over the last year as a result of continuous historic flow of a vessel holding up millions of containers is clogging ports and slowing down processing. These, the, the delays have been costly and like along like Nike, along with retailers, Crocs, Gap, Peloton, Foot Locker, Five Below, William Sonoma, Steve Madden, Whirlpool, Urban Outfitters, and Tesla all cited supply problems, supply chain problems 
impacting their businesses this quarter. Now you got this massive ship making it even worse. So I thought that was just very interesting of like how much trade goes through that one canal and then somehow this massive ship ran aground and turned sideways in the middle of this canal. Yeah, I mean, it well, it's it just seems like it's always, you know, when it rains it pours kind of thing. Yeah. It's just one thing after another after another. They it just keeps building on the current problems that we are seeing that we're having within even within real estate, you know, building supplies, building materials, all that stuff. It just still expensive it still makes it hard to build it's still you know there's so many um <clears throat> transportation issues with delivering the materials we're getting all the stuff that we need to build to do what we need and then you have a massive housing shortage you know so it's like it just keeps adding and then now you have all of these uh the new tax plan that Biden is proposing which is not official yet as far as like what he's actually what's actually going to be in the plan but he stayed pretty consistent with a lot of the things. And I had on uh, Brian Lang that you can check out that interview. It's uh, on our channel right now. But I had Brian Lang talk about the pretty much all the implications of the tax plan of everything that's going to do. And it's, tar it's targeting small businesses. It's targeting real estate investors. It's targeting, uh, you know, the wealthy. I mean, it's, it's something that you're literally targeting the producers of the economy. For what reason? In a time where those producers are still getting smacked left and right by everything else that's going on in the economy. So, I mean, those are the things that I just, I don't know, they, they're kind of weird to me. It's, it just makes me wonder, like, what is it that your economists, what is it that your advisors are seeing that's making you think that you should be doing this right now? You know what I mean? I understand that, like, it seems like, the Democrats are and the Republicans are one trick pony. One raises taxes, the other lowers taxes, period. And it's like, can we at least take a minute to start thinking through the process a little bit yeah. and thinking like, hey, instead of doing what we always do that we understand doesn't work, why not actually think through why that doesn't this work and how can we make it work? Well, it's always that thing that Democrats always tax and spend, Republicans borrow and spend. It's always been the adage to where it's like it's two sides of the same coin of like how yeah. how it affects things and, and they like, just keep doing it president after president is the same yeah. crap over and over higher and higher and higher it's like it's the same effect because like they're going to tax but they're not going to pay down debt they're just going to spend it republicans they don't tax they lower taxes but then they borrow to run the deficits that they need to do to run their plants so i i have an article here like where i was saying how you know the 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 tax plan and the Biden. uh uh, government is actually out, uh, in my opinion, I mean, they haven't come out and said it, but with all the things that are being delivered to me, they're out to get the real estate investor. You know what I mean? They just do not want real estate investors apparently to do anything. Well, I mean, well it's one and, of the things that housing, housing and real estate's always been something that they've protected for a long time because a lot of politicians make a ton of money through real estate too. So they have, I do see it and for sure they're attacking because there's a lot money made in real estate, um, especially if you hold stuff long-term. Yeah, but it, there's a reason why that money is made because you're providing the housing that people need, the stuff. That's why you have, like people say, oh, the, the real estate investors take advantage of the loopholes. These are not loopholes. These are tax incentives to do what the government cannot, nor should they do. I mean, we've all heard of government housing. It's never nice. Oh, and it's cost just of, as much as class A 
private sector housing. Yeah, and you're living in essentially in the dumps in a lot of areas. But this article, they talk about uh, renters and Biden's fifteen thousand um, dollar home buyer tax credit. So it says, according to Zillow, a Zillow report, about nine point three million renter households in the U.S.—that's roughly twenty-seven percent—would spend less than a third of their income on monthly payment for the medium house, medium home sold in their metro in twenty twenty if they received the full tax credit. So this is allowing roughly 27% of renters to be able to afford to actually buy a house and make it affordable for them to do it. And this is, of course, taking into account that they get they do the 3.5% down payment, 30-year mortgage at a 3% interest rate. The tax credit would cover a borrower's entire down payment for a home in 40 out of the 50 largest U.S. metros. And one key difference with early tax credit is the early ones that you would have to pay for it and then you would get it back when you did your taxes. That was a 2008 this, st- stimulus. Yeah, you, you would get this one back. It, you would get this tax credit instantly for you to use when you buy your house. So this wouldn't be something that you got to come out of pocket and then you'll get it back. You're getting this money to buy the house. And then you have the Census Bureau found that 307 100,000 new homes were on the market in January, roughly four months worth of supply at the current sales rate. As for how much borrowers paid that month, the medium sales price was around 346, while the actual sales average was closer to 409, pushing the prices out of reach for those who would receive a down payment assistance. And what I found interesting is Lawrence Young, the chief economist at the National Association of Realtors, only with added supply will the home buyer tax credit be effective in boosting home ownership and engaging the middle class. Without supply, home prices jump much higher with no meaningful gain to the new home ownership. Where the reason I found that interesting is because that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing with the increase in taxes with the increase in inflation with the increase in all this you doing this fifteen thousand dollar tax credit it's not going to mean a damn thing and it's not going to help the people that you think it's going to help i read that same article and that's why also they said that it's highly unlikely that biden's white house will prioritize this in the near term yeah because you're looking at it and it's like we have a huge housing uh, shortage you're trying to put even more buyers because you want people to get out of renting right that's why i'm saying it's targeting investors because who owns rentals going to be investors well it's also so, targeting those long-term gains to where it's like it makes it less advantageous to own those properties long term if you make over a million bucks so like if you make over a million dollars a year that's when all these things kind of cap in so it's like saying hey you can't make as much money in real estate anymore so stop trying to flood money into real estate when you have this cash and go other else um well and that's the thing like one of the topics that we talked about with uh brian was you know they're they're raising the capital gains tax um so essentially that if you're selling anything over a million which if you're in real estate and you're owning a couple houses and you follow that you know like the rich dad model or that monopoly model right four green houses one red hotel they're killing you on that because they want to get rid of the 1031 so you won't be able to roll that over into another property and delay your taxes. You're going to have to pay taxes regardless on that property. So it might cause people to not want to sell because now it's like, well, if I sell, I'm going to have a, well, a lot huge of things, tax liability. A lot of liability. things I've seen about this is like they're going away, but they're going away for people that make 
significant amount of money a year. Where the 1031 is going away if you make over a million dollars in a year. That's when they, they take it away. That's not that much. And then that's when, um, that, so that's where they always say they're not taxing people that make less than 400 grand. Uh, and that's where it's like a lot of this stuff kicks in the higher capital gains rates, the long-term yeah. things where it's like, if you're wealthy by over 400 grand up to like a million bucks. So that's when all these tax advantages start disappearing. But that's not that much because you look at people that are actual investors. They're the ones that are going to get hit, hitting a million in real estate. It's not that much. It's not that hard to achieve if you're an investor. Yeah. You know, this isn't going to affect your everyday person, your, per, your investor that maybe has one or two homes, but an investor that has five homes they decide to sell those five homes and especially with all the appreciation well, what, roll them over well that's what uh brian made the point is like that's why people need to understand these things they're like you can't dump all your inventory in one year if that if you go for making 200 grand a year right. and then all of a sudden you dump all your inventory and it bumps you to a million that year like that's when you can get screwed exactly. so it's like you need to understand these things to where like it's going to make the tax planning aspect of real estate much more challenging and it's like i really got to plan out when and how I do my properties or you don't sell things. You immediately turn it to owner finance where it's like, I still get the cash flow, but I don't get the cash. And then you can sell off chunks of your note. It's going to make it just much more creative to where yes. the people that are in this day to day towards like, I've, uh, we'll have a discussion about this later, but, uh, popped in my head, like the NFTs. Yeah. Uh, I listened to a segment, um, Rick Edelman did about NFTs and he, he has a very good job of explaining what is really happening in layman's term mm -hmm. to where it's like, yeah, you can sell off a piece of your home. Like you're an individual, like you say, you're an investor. It's like, mm, I need $100,000 and I got this massive portfolio. So I'm going to sell off $100,000 worth of my equity and get a hundred grand from it. And now they get to participate in the cash flow, like much like we try to do with the prime homes model several years ago. Then now they're doing it via that way to where it's like, all right, I just literally don't sell anything. I just sell off $950,000 that year and just kind of sell off pieces of it at a time and through those nfts so it's going to make things much more creative and i think it's that's why it was funny like they they write these laws but the private sector is too damn good too fast and too yes. smart and to be like yeah I, I don't have to go through 500 senators to get these things passed it's like you guys go through all those things by the time you even put that stuff out there's new businesses that are popping up new strategies coming up that are going to create ways to still accomplish the same goal that we had been in the past a hundred percent. And it's just that it's, that's the whole point that we were making, um, during that interview is one of the things that I told Brian, I was like, this is the problem. Like people need to get educated. Yeah. People need to, so many, especially in real estate, uh, investing. We always hear people say, Oh, my accountant handles that. My accountant handles that. It's like, all you're saying is that you're lazy as shit and you don't know what the hell's going on with your books. And then if your accountant tells you, hey, you have this massive profit, why don't you go buy a freaking vehicle? You go like a dumbass and buy a vehicle instead of understanding what this does to you and how this affects you. I just love the way Brian was like, that's probably like the laziest tax advice you could give somebody to like save money on taxes. 100%. Like they've been saying like, go buy a vehicle, go buy a vehicle, go buy a vehicle. It's like, so you're now you just used and it's only to save only to save 40%. It's yeah. like you save 40% in tax by going and leveraging a depreciating asset. It's like, that There's you're so paying. many other ways yeah. that you could do like a 401k, a sell a 401k you could do uh, IRA. Like if you've already maxed all those things out and you still have this massive profit, it's like, okay, now it makes sense. But yeah. dollar for dollar for a solo 401k, I think you can contribute like 50 grand a year towards. 
and now you go buy a new brand new vehicle for 80 like you run that math like it just doesn't make sense and that and that's why like you one yes you need to find a savvy uh tax strategist but two you need to become a savvy yeah. tax strategist i mean why i like this time of the year is because usually in a lot of podcasts you have people um a lot of podcasts that start interviewing tax strategists and what's coming down the line and all. And I love listening to that because I love understanding what's happening with the tax strategies. What are things that are changing? This law, you know, if they if they push this through with the 1031s and with the capital gains, okay, they're going to do that regardless of how you feel, how much your feelings get hurt. It doesn't matter. Now you need to get strategic and say, okay, well, if they're doing this, what is it? How can I prevent this from happening? How can I keep doing business? How can I keep investing by doing this kind of thing? You yeah. know what I mean? And, and taking care of your bottom line, because if you can't make money, you can't stay in business. Well, that's where it's just funny. That's like, how oh, are you going to tax the business owner and the investors and the, the rich people? Like, do you really think you're going to be able to attack those people? The reason they are in a the position they're in is it wasn't just given to them. The yeah. vast majority of them, and especially like, what is it? Like 70% of new millionaires are self-made. Or it's like the reason they are where they are is because they're smart. The Trump thing is like, you paid zero in tax because I'm smart. And it just dropped. It's like, yeah, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. If you're smart, I mean, it's not that you're being greedy, right? It, it, that's where it annoys the hell out of me when people always criticize uh, the rich or, yes, you do have greedy rich people and all yes. that, 100%. But the majority of them are not greedy. They're taking care of their bottom line. Because that's how you stay in business. Yeah. If you're not profitable, if you're not making money, why are you doing this? Yeah. You understand? And I always find it hilarious. And that was something that I spoke about with Brian is how, especially from the left, that you hear all these people, yeah, tax the rich, yeah, screw them, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as it's like it's tax time, they're like, wait, I got to pay what? $100 in taxes? $200? Oh, this is bullshit. Why do I got to pay? Blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. What happened with taxing people? I thought you were cool with taxes. You're cool with everything as long as it doesn't touch you. And it's like, that's not how these things work. It's always going to touch you. Yeah. You understand? Because we are connected. Everything connects with everybody else. It's the same when COVID happened and people were asking me, you know, how has this affected your business? And it's like, at the time, I'm like, it hasn't yet. But we got to wait for this to come around. Yeah, it was always the thing we said, like, especially with real estate, it's like, it's not an immediate thing like a restaurant. Yeah, like it's very long-winded and delayed to the sense that like, we buy something, we might not be selling it for six, eight, twelve months. A new construction, it could take a year or more, especially when you go through the development process and everything like that. Or like, I don't know what it's going to be in a year. Or it makes it very uneasy when it's like, God, when everything was coming down, it's like, uh, man, I really don't know yeah. uh, what it's going to look like in six to twelve months. Yeah, and then there was uh, another article I was reading that they're saying buyers are getting very frustrated because. They, they can't buy homes, you know, they're out there and then they can't find it. They can't find it. And all of a sudden they get priced out because the prices are just, they keep going for literally yeah. sell by sell. It keeps edging I mean, higher before, and higher. We used to like what three years, two, three years ago when we started doing this, like we just said, we're just going to hold the property for three months. Like, because that's when FHA financing became available mm -hmm. or it's like, there's just no point. Cause we'll, I'll finish this rehab, put it on the market and all the days on market go high and I'll end up hitting 90 days anyways yeah. uh, for that. But now it's like, no, get it done as fast as we can put it on the market because there's so many just to get from, go from FHA to conventional. It's only one and a half percent extra on the down payment. Yep. You only got to put 5% down. And there's so many VA buyers on tour. Now it's like, if you are just barely scraping by with FHA financing, like if I get offers, and 
it's just like I'm not going to go the FHA route. Like I will gladly take a conventional or VA over FHA. Well, and then also we have that other thing that we've been seeing more and more, especially when you're running comps, is how the buyer's agent, their commission is dropping yeah. as well. Because it's like being a buyer's agent right now is not hard oh, at yeah, all. It's like finding buyers. It's like, but finding a house to put them in to buy. Exactly. Just to where uh, we got some a friend of ours that listed a house, not FHA financeable yet. Just was I think it was on the market within two weeks of owning it. And he even put in the description, not FHA financeable until this date, much like Open Door does. Mm-hmm. And it was like two months still before it was financeable. And then he listed, I think it was like, like 170. And some agent threw out 185,000 FHA. Yeah. And like, did you not read the description? You still wasted time to go over there. And it's like, that's why buyer's agent commissions are dropping. Yeah. Is because you have people that just go find buyers and they just start showing them a ton of houses, not even reading descriptions, just so eager. And no, that was it. Oh man, I didn't put that in here. That how many agents are in San Antonio compared to listings? So in Sabor, San Antonio Board of Realtors, just here in San Antonio, there are 12,000 registered agents. On the MLS alone, there's only 3,200 houses for sale. Yeah. Four times the amount of agents compared to what's for sale. It's like, and uh, call me a greedy agent. I have two of them. Yeah. Of my own properties, well, the one that I'm representing. It's like, so you know the expert, and like, I'm not that active. Yeah. You go to some of the people that we know that are like, make their living off of real estate, do 10, 15 million a year by themselves. They might have 10 transactions going on at one time. So- there's a, a ton of agents that are not getting anything. A video that I did that's also on our channel about, you know, working with inexperienced mm-hmm. agents. And it was those stats. It was how many agents we have in San Antonio, uh, operating in San Antonio, not just in San Antonio, but the operate here. It was closer to like sixteen to 18,000 agents that operate in San Antonio. Then you had the number of listings available. And then you take into account the stats that we've always heard that, 80% of the listings are done by 20% of the agents. Yeah. So you take 20% of the listings left over. It was like like 800 listings that was going to go to 80% of those agents. So the level of agents that are hungry for that commission, the yeah. level of agents that don't know what the hell they're doing, everybody and anybody. I, I mean, my wife comes every now and then and tells me how one of the, the, the women in the, like the, they do a group that's called walking moms and they go to park with the kids to walk and exercise or whatever. And yeah. And, um, how every now and then one of them is, Oh, I'm going to get my real estate license. I'm going to get my real estate license. I'm like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, there really isn't any level of barrier of entry. It's like, if you have time and you can study that you can test well, you can get your license. You understand? But then you have that problem. You have unsophisticated agents trying to submit offers for people they don't know how to submit. They don't know how, how the market works. They don't they know just, how. They don't, just don't even realize like FHA financing, you can't yeah. just put it on Basic any house. Things. Like the person, prior owner needs to own the house for 90 days yeah. for it to be FHA financeable. Yeah, and then you have these brokerages that are There's so- something. Hum- they got these new buyer stuff. They should change those laws. Or it's like, what? V- or lower that barrier. Or like the FHA, it's inhibiting new home buyers from the ability to compete in today's marketplace. On those FHA financing. Well, they're trying to target the investors they're, first. Yeah, they're targeting the investors in 90 days, but they don't, now they don't have, want to benefit the investors. But it's one of those that you're benefiting the investor, but at not at anyone's expense. It's yeah, like but you're you, now getting you're, new people into you're it. You're thinking 
something logically. that's logical and that makes actual sense. That's not what they the government does. They don't yeah. do logic and they don't make sense. So they we're just gonna look at like oh anti flipping laws. We need to have those in here to make sure they own it to protect the consumer. I was like, well, now since you're trying to protect the consumer, I'm the government. I'm here to help. They can't well, they can't well, get into housing because the prior owners on some houses are haven't owned them for ninety days. Plus anti flipping laws. Has that stopped people from flipping? No. You get what I'm saying, like. Yeah. Guys, like seriously, let's let's sit down. And that thing that when you go like this, it rattles a lot. Let's try to actually use it for once and see, like, hey, <laughs> it rattles um, a lot. let's actually put this to work. Yeah. Maybe it'll fill in our head a little bit. Yeah. But going into the unique uh, how investors, how people adapt. There's a real estate brokerage. I've been I've had this article on here for quite oh some my God, time. Thank God. I'm finally, going to be able to talk about it. But I have a real estate brokerage that has a unique model to to how they operate in the real estate business. So many economists are predicting low mortgage rates for the extended period of time, which will keep the red hot sellers market intact indefinitely. With that in mind, home sellers are racing to the market and searching for ways to pay lower commissions to list their properties that are confident will sell quickly. Because, I mean, that's another thing, you know, inventory is so low that it's like, what the hell do you really need an agent for? Like to push paperwork, you know what I mean? Because they're not doing anything else. They don't need to be doing anything. Today, both sellers and buyers expect to handle a majority of the process online. For the well-prepared real estate brokerages, this holds a promising future. Louisiana-based real estate brokerage, 1% list, talk about keywords, they <laughs> Their name is 1% List, takes an innovative, cost-effective approach to selling homes, and it is now franchising that model at an aggressive price to quickly open in markets throughout the country. The company offers complete real estate services for only 1% commission on the listing side. Its service includes professional photography, no upfront fees, all negotiation, pricing, staging advice, showing monitoring, and more for a flat 1% fee. Due to the company's value proposition, the agents at 1% list spend less time on lead generation than their counterparts and more time listing a larger volume of homes. The larger volume of listings is then used to create real buyer clients organically. Over the last five years, 1% list agents retention level has been close to 100% as agents at 1% list are able to stop paying for leads, list more houses and generate buyers from its large pool of listings. So it's it's helping out the agents because it's giving them they handle all of the marketing, they handle everything. All the agents got to do is go ahead, they got a list, they use pretty much uh 1% list that company's uh back end to manage the listing, manage everything. And then they focus on getting the buyers. So they also can bring the buyers, yep. you know? So now our agents no longer have to focus on overwhelming lead gen, requires uh, to the business for purchasing expensive uh, dead-end buyer leads, says the, the owner. Owner agents focus on branding, our unique value proposition, which has clients pursuing them when you charge. And same fees as thousands of yeah. other agents. I don't know why. Uh, uh, do, 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 do. There we go. Our agents focus on branding, unique proposition. So they, they focus on just 
building that same brand of their business. We simply have convinced the world we exist and then the business pursues us. That is a much easier task to accomplish. I mean, in the market where sellers are looking for a lower listing, the fact that their company name is 1% list is already enough. Because as soon as somebody goes online on Google on anything and searches, you know, uh, 1% fees or lower interest, uh, lower fees, listing yeah. fees, they're going to show well, up I mean, number one. The, I see billboards all over. Like you see these discount brokerages popping up, popping up all the time to where it's like, hey, $1,000 flat fee, $1,000 flat fee. You're paying how much in real estate commissions? You need a bigger fee okay. or you need, you should be saving your money. Or and, like, especially you get into those higher prices. And then here, here's also the, the innovativeness of this, uh, the CEO of this company. They partner with one-click SEO. Um, so it makes it for their franchisees and agents can get world-class digital marketing campaigns put in place for them for about one-fifth of what they would normally pay. This means my agents and franchisees have a lot more of their money go to proven marketing strategies rather than management fees. Our goal is to provide a high quality and most important cost-effective strategy so agents can focus on the agents on what agents like to do. Lots of real estate deals. <laughs> Since branding is an important part of real estate, 1% recently brought on graphic design team that all of its franchisees and agents can use free of charge. So you're eliminating the biggest barrier so many people have, which is marketing and digital marketing at that. And then you're leveraging your brand because now they're doing digital marketing to, they're paying for the digital marketing that's building the massive brand that they already have of 1% list. So it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it just, that feeds the brand, the brand feeds the agent. And it just keeps, I, like to me, I'm like, this shit is gonna blow up. In the last few months, 1% has experienced uh, a great deal of growth as many of its own top producers are becoming franchisees. The 1% list currently has nine franchises open with another 11 commitments preparing to open in Louisiana, Tennessee, Maryland, Mississippi, California, Florida, and North Carolina. And forecast having up to 100 franchisees open by the end of 2021. So our franchisees requests come from the wide range of people. Some of them are small, traditional 6% brokers looking to try something new. Some of them are discount brokers who haven't figured out how to scale it and make it a, and make it a boom. So this is the stuff that we talk about. You know what I mean? Like being innovative, figuring shit out. You, a lot of brokers, they won't do this because they're like, I can't generate a profit. Yes, that is true. You cannot generate a profit that way. But at scale, at scale, at the scale that these people are well, doing it. That's what a lot of these companies do. It's like yeah. they run at a loss or break even just taking market share. And that's how business is done. Or it's like that's why all these all these companies that raise billions of dollars, that's open doors model. And like Perch and Zillow, like they run billions of dollars in losses to try to create a new way of thinking yeah. and force the consumer to think a different way to eventually they can turn a profit. And that's, that's where exactly I think if you're, if you're a broker or an agent that is struggling, right? Like this is a model that you should try to adapt as quickly as possible. You should try to maybe become a franchisee for these people. They already have the marketing. They have the funnels. They have everything. The market is red hot. It's going in this direction anyway. It's, are you going to accept it or not? 
Yeah. You understand? Like, are you going to get like, put out new, of business? Like, there's always going to be a place for very experienced agents that command a, a demand a, a high level of service. Mm-hmm. But 100%. that's not your 80%. Uh, it's like the good agents will always continue to get their 3%. They might have to lower a little bit further, but it's the level of service that they provide that that uh, hand-holding of the, like, the, what you call it, the champagne service mm-hmm. kind of thing. To where you get down to where it's like, hey, I have a $200,000 house. Um, I don't need services. Get this thing sold for me off and doing other things. Yeah, 1%, boom, gone. But you get into those big, big houses that need high levels of marketing across multiple markets and other divisions like your Phyllis Brownings and your um, your higher end stuff. Because I think I, um, going out to the Dominion now uh, for some a listing that I drive by. There's a Phyllis Browning International Realty office right at the front door. They drive by the thing and it's like Phyllis Browning International Realty right there. Yeah. To where like you will always have those people. But the vast majority of them, I agree that it's going to be, you got to lower it down and just 3% off of some of these is not going to make sense anymore. Especially as more as the internet continues to grab hold more and more and more and more that that's the way it's going to. Yeah, the be. internet is not going away. Marketing is not going away. You want exposure. You want everything. People are... M- on their phones, on the internet, more and more. I mean, you cannot really run any business without being online. So they're dominating the online presence by partnering with a company that does SEO. Their oh, specialty just, is SEO. I mean, and the way it's been integrated into <laughs> systems nowadays with like the uh, cell phones and Facebook and Google's and Twitter. Yeah. Like, then they're. I don't know what's eventually going to happen with that. There's an article I started reading that. Once again, for five and a half hours, the three big tech influence CEOs got pulled in front of Congress again. And for five and a half hours, and they said they just started, there's tensions ran hot a lot, and they're constantly being pulled. I mean, I think this is the fifth time in the last 12 months they've been pulled to Congress. It's just posturing. It's uh, it's posturing. It's Congress trying to make it seem like they give a damn. And at the end of the day, it's like all they keep doing is making the internet and all these social media platforms worse and worse for consumers. Yeah, because they they're trying to regulate the shit out of it, and all they keep doing is overcorrecting. Yeah, by have, drastic you and I have different opinions on social media and those things, but yeah, the way it is, regardless, like they are attached to your phones, they're constantly there. They listen to all your phone conversations. I'm thinking about listing my house. Next thing I tell them, I get on Facebook, one percent is going to be right there at the top. Yep, and it's like that's how it works. But my thing is like, as a business owner, you got to embrace it. Like you can't get so emotional about all these things, right? Because they hurt your feelings. It's like, this is the way the market yeah, it's is like going. Personally, it's not I, going I, I, away. Personally, I don't agree with it. But yeah. business-wise, it's like, yeah, you got to freaking have it. It's like, a, you can't 100%. fight it because it's going there until they are able to slow it down and change it. You got you to gotta be unemotional. Like we always talk about real estate. You can't get emotional about real estate. You get emotional about real estate, that's when you lose. Yes. And the business is the same way. You can't get emotional about what's going on. So you can put up a fight to try to influence things, but then you also have to be able to adapt to what is actually currently going on and see like, all right, it's going that way. I need to adapt my business that way, but I can try to willingly contribute to steer it in a different direction. But at the end of the day, if you lose the vote, you lose the vote and you need to go with what the economy is. So before we move on, I wanted to ask you a question and I'd forgotten about it. Just remembered it. Months of inventory, right? You put out the market update. Uh, you're going to be doing another full Texas market update uh, this coming week. So you put out the market update, and the biggest key that we look for everything is months of inventory. Yeah. Months of inventory dictates how hot 
a certain price point is, certain zip codes are, certain market is. The balance, since we started, we've always heard a balanced market is six months. Yeah. Right? Below six months is a seller's market. Above six months is a buyer's market. Since I've been in real estate, it's been, I think, at or below four months since like oh yeah ever since i've been here like, like it, starting in real estate it's like it's always been uh below six months in the majority of overall market right. and now we're in a lot of areas we're even below one month below two months for sure and most of san antonio i mean do you think that there's a chance that that metric changes where moving forward a balanced market becomes maybe four months instead of six you think there's a possibility as we linger longer and longer into these lower months of inventory and the market keeps moving, you, because I think about it now, like if we're below a month, below two months, if we go up to six months, I mean, what are we talking about? Massive depression? You know what I mean? Like I try to picture like if it's six months of inventory in a, in San Antonio, call it like. Well, that's just where where are the we? The natural and like the because that's what everyone says like real estate hasn't been in a good asset class because it only appreciates three percent a year. Like yeah, but except you lower interest rates, so you have these inflation adjusted metrics where like if real estate did not get these bumps from these lower interest rates, then it, yes, it doesn't appreciate as fast. So I think that's where you get that balance is that that six months inventory is when it rises at its natural price over time. Because if there's more demand, it does push prices up. If there's lower interest rates, it does push prices up to where like, I don't think, I mean, they could obviously spin it however they want to the balanced market change in that metric. But I think it's, it's something that's set that the studies have been done. The math's been done to where you get that natural inflation curve, a rise of real estate prices. You need to be at a six month inventory regardless mm. of the interest rate. So if we went to yeah. six months, Real estate wouldn't continue to fly up as it did. It would just slowly go up, even with low interest rates. But you're talking about letting the market do what the market does, which that's not what's happening. What's happening is that the market is being controlled and manipulated every step of the way to do what they feel needs the market needs to do. So what I'm saying is... What do you mean? Well, like the, the real estate market is, like we've said before, they're not, they don't want the real estate market to crash. Right? They don't want it to come down. They don't want it to crash because it's their gauge to a great economy. And what we see now over the past decades is that the government has a complete control on what the metrics do and what the economy does. Because you have the Federal Reserve is buying 120 billions a month of bonds. They're printing money left and right. They're going to keep propping shit up as much well, as they need the, and they control just, all that. So manipulating real estate specifically. That's It's, it's real estate and asset price. Asset prices yeah. or it's like every asset any so how, asset. how would it regulate on its own when we are kind of like everything that we see is being controlled it's not really being left to its own devices i mean do you i don't know i mean I, the way i look at it with the way everything is being controlled and being ran i feel like if we get to a six month balanced market it's because it blew up in that direction i don't think we're going to have a gradual like it should go to a six month balanced market. I think it's going to go like if we even get that high again. You're talking it's like you need a lending crisis. Something needs to happen. It's like you need a crisis that I mean, just like or they need to lower what a balanced market looks like. So then that way it can be more controlled and not all the way to six months. It's more like four months. Because I think about it like how to get to six months. I, I don't see them doing it in a controlled format. 
Like, I think it's going to be, you know, it's low well, it's just, and then it explodes. I, I don't No, I, I don't think they'll change the metric because the metric doesn't matter. It's, it's just a metric of what a balanced market is. Like, they don't care. They just want a functioning, they by meaning the, the, no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying they care about what the metric is. I'm saying for us, like for investors and everything, are we going to reframe the way we look at what a balanced market is? Oh, I, um, no, because I really don't use that as like an overall six-month balance metric. I say that because that's what people talk about, but right. it's also like I'm going to frame my frame of mind of what is the current market? How long is it taking? Just like right now, we would always hold houses for at least 90 days before we put it on the market. And now we've changed that frame of mind because of how the market's reacting of when people put on the houses. Yeah. So like if that slows down or more inventory comes up, I mean, it's just an inventory problem. Yeah, uh, 100%. Because of what we consider to be a balanced market is how we know we're in a hot market, right? Things sell fast. We look at months of inventory. At what point do you feel like, or is that just not going to matter where it's like, all right, now it's taking longer to sell. It doesn't matter if we consider it to be a hot market or not. It just takes X amount of days yeah, to sell. And that's just, just what I it just is. adjust my initial, pur initial purchase prices. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not going to take on that deal. It's like, because I know it's going to take me four or five months to sell it. So as time goes, um, but given, yeah, if you have just a massive crisis where everything comes to a screeching halt, you're screwed anyways. Yeah. So it's kind of like you just adjust and like over time and just make sure you not make too quick of rash decision for a quick profit. Then the thing we talk about, like understanding why you're making money. So like the wholesale aspect or the, you buy it, you just clean it up to where you can get financing, you put it on the market. You got to understand why you're getting that price the way you're getting it. Because if you keep that business model moving forward and then you're not paying attention of what's driving those buyers and that consumer mindset, you eventually your business model is going to go to crap because you're going to keep doing that. And all of a sudden you're going to get inventory that sits longer and longer and longer because you're doing crappy renovations. Well, I mean, that, that was a discussion you and I had last night and last week. And when I did the workshop, that was something it was on wholesaling. That was one thing that I was telling them is that. You got to understand that as a wholesaler, just because you can wholesale a crappy deal doesn't mean that you should stop trying to understand why it's a crappy deal, right? Because as a wholesaler, you your goal should be to become an actual investor at some point. Yeah. You understand? Because as wholesalers, we've seen it time and time again, like you, you can't build a, a sustainable life as a wholesaler because it's just a job. You know, it's, it's, you got to keep wholesaling. You got to keep deals coming in. You got to keep putting them out in order to keep making revenue. Where an investor is not speculating, they're investing. They're holding on to property. They're investing long-term. It's calculated risk. Um, and I was telling them, I'm like, you got to take the time to understand if you are hoteling a deal and all this, and it's not an actual deal, you need to understand what that looks like. Because we're seeing people left and right that are cutting corners they're cutting corners with rehab. They're cutting corners with all this just because they can. Trying to make deals work. Exactly. But they don't understand that it's like just because you can doesn't mean you should. Because when you try to become a real investor, that shit is not going to slide anymore. That's not going to be allowed anymore. And But that's the way that and you learn you, how to do real estate. You do it long enough over time, you're going to get caught. Yeah, and it's going to come back. And that's what a lot of wholesalers don't understand. It's like they think, oh, I wholesaled the property. I'm done. It's like. You can still get sued later on by the buyer yeah. or anything. You're still attached to that yeah, transaction. Yeah, your name is still on a yeah. paperwork and document somewhere. Yeah. That it's like, oh, yeah. But if, I mean, especially if you're just a one-off wholesaler and like you're not, you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars, you get roped into a big lawsuit and like you're involved in it. It's like, yeah, you're, you, 
you have to defend yourself still, even though it's not no fault of your own. It's like, I just moved the paper. Well, the courts don't care by you saying that I, I just moved the paper. Like attorney needs to tell the courts that you just moved the paper and an attorney's not going to do that for free. Well, um, and it's going to, and it's going to go back to the same thing of, you know, you should have known better. You knew what you were getting yourself into. Yeah. You know what I mean? You didn't do it right. Like you are still going to be liable for shit. Like, and especially in a country where we're so litigious and you can get sued for anything you have to be careful with what you do. You have to understand, hey, this is a shitty deal, and I understand this is a shitty deal, right? Now take the precautions moving forward. And the same when you're flipping, the same when you're keeping a rental, because then even when you're keeping a rental, and we talk about all the tax liabilities, all the things that can happen, you don't know what can change from one year to the next. So you have a rental, maybe it wasn't a great deal, and then all of a sudden, a few a year or so from now, you're like, oh, I got to get rid of it. But the tax loss change, everything changed. And now you getting rid of that becomes either impossible to do or you're going to get hit hard. Yep. You understand? So it's like you need to buy right. You need to be savvy. You need to understand and you need to invest the right way, you know, and there is a right way to invest as much people don't believe there is. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how how people adapt um and how people manage all of these things moving forward but i wanted to move forward with uh talking about emotional politics so you have warren buffett's berkshire hathaway floats 8.3 billion dollar fix for the texas power grid so the company berkshire hathaway is proposing an 8.3 billion dollar plan to help texas avoid a repeat of february's blackout building a lot of new natural gas plants. The conglomerate is asking state lawmakers to approve a plan for a new company that would add about 10 gigawatts of gas plants and emergency gas storage, according to the presentation seen by, Bloom by Bloomberg. The Texas, grid will operate, the Texas grid operator will control the plants and could tap them to prevent blackouts like the one that, was, that left more than 4 million homes and businesses in the dark. We really want to make sure that this never happens again, so we're really wanting to partner with the state. Chris Brown, Chief Executive Officer of Berkshire Hathaway Energy Infrastructure Group said. The proposal is simple. State residents should have a reliable source of backup power. If Berkshire Hathaway is successful in its lobbying, Texas will be adding a massive amount of new gas-fired capacity at a time when president biden is trying to shift the country yeah. away from fossil fuels that's what i was just gonna think like is it they tried to get away from like gas and coal-fired stuff now we're trying to force these all renewable things yeah like, so that's interesting and i can see texas doing that just despite the administration well uh, well texas is going more blue than anything so i i don't think they will under the proposal texas power customers would pay a fee to cover the costs of the plants in exchange for making the investment, Berkshire is proposing to earn 9.3% rate of return, which would need to, which would need approval by the state regulators. And then you get this comment: We see little to no cha chance of Texas approving that Buffett proposal," said Andy DeVries, the utility analyst at Credit Sites. If they were going to spend that amount of money, which is a big if. They would do it with Texas companies. So the fuck does that matter? You know what I mean? Like to do it with Texas companies. It's like if another company is proposing a better solution, 
and the Texas companies can't propose that solution, then the best solution for the state is the best solution for the state, regardless of who's proposing it, you would think. I don't know. Well, it's probably one of those, like, it's the same thing. Like, we would try to propose that and, like, I see what you're doing, but I'm going to create a coalition of the local Texas companies to keep money in Texas to not have outside influence. Because now you have that massive amount of power being controlled by a company that doesn't live, that doesn't office here. Yeah. You're sending that money to Nebraska. Now, Nebraska has control and hold of your power grid. They're trying to say, you would have control. It's like, cash is king. Who's got the money? Who paid for it? That's who has the control and power. Or like that's one of the been pride and joys of Texas that it, it it's Texas owned. It doesn't have a lot of outside influence in it, which obviously caused a lot of the problems. But right. they've been able to skirt outside regulation because it is Texas owned, and that is kind of one of those things where that's why he says there's zero chance of it being approved. They're like, because Texas, you can't just change that overnight. The the mentality oh, right. of how it's run. So that's where I say like it may cost us ten billion to have it done via Texas companies, but we're going to do it because it's Texas companies. Not my thing is like does, the government doesn't run efficiently well, based like that. Do Texas companies have the resources, the knowledge, and the ability to implement what Berkshire Hathaway has proposed? And I'm not saying what Berkshire is proposing is the solution. I'm just yeah. it's my curiosity. Like you know, we rather give it to Texas companies. Oh, can they do that? Well, Texas is also the energy capital of the United States, so I would assume they'd be able to figure it out and do it. It just comes down to the financing aspect of it. I'd imagine it's like, where's the cash yeah. come from? But 8.3 billion is a lot of money, but 8.3 billion isn't a lot of money to a lot of people or as plans like that. Like I think they could raise 8.3 billion as the state of Texas to invest in energy companies well, or do all kinds of creative financing to make that work. The article continues by saying it could have the plan operational by winter of 2023 uh, the proposal would cost less than winterizing the state's power generators or creating a so-called capacity market where generation generation units are paid to provide supplies in future years, according to Berkshire. Berkshire will ensure that no customer will ever be without power for more than three hours. The Texas Reliability Corp. would offer a $4 billion performance Guarantee provided by an investment grade counterparty. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. I, I agree with what you're saying as far as keeping it in Texas, because obviously we have, you know, Texas has the, or at least should have the best interests of its people in mind and not outside influence, outside power. But that is a proposal. They they have that in there saying it's going to cost less than from what it seems that like Texas is planning to do right now as it is. So, I don't know. I, I just, I don't see Texas adopting it just for the fact that one of the biggest reasons why we got into this problem is because Texas has been investing so much money trying to go green. And all the mills, all, all the windmills, all the green energy, all that shit froze. And that's, yeah. you know, what created such a big problem. So I don't, and Texas keeps going more blue than anything. So I don't see how they're going to allow something that's powered by gas, you know, even if it's going to function, even if it's going to work. Well, you say going blue, but our, our state legislature is still red and it's majority rules. Like they still have, they don't have a super majority like California does as far as like blue, yeah. but our legislation is still very red. Or like, yeah, the population's turning blue, oh, yeah. but 
the state legislature is still red and the elections aren't coming around to where this is a plan that's going to come up this year's plan where it's like if the red state and red politicians want it they will go that route yeah like but they, they have to make the decision before the next election which is this what well, but they have this decision comes up now this year is a uh, state legislature year to where it would get done they've already said like they are going to address this issue this legislative session yeah i remember him saying that you know it wasn't going to go beyond this year yeah because we only meet every two years i mean yeah. it's cool because the fact that doesn't give the politicians a, that uh, every opportunity every year to screw our economy over and make all businesses change but uh, it's one of those like they can't wait another two years after this year to address this issue. Well, uh, I still think the best solution that there is is for you to address it for yourself at your home, where it's like there's a chance that this could happen again. Are you prepared to handle that next thing, or are you waiting for the government to solve it for you? The government is inefficient. I would say if you can, try to take all the precautions that you can yourself to protect yourself and your family. That's the own. only thing you have control over. So you should over. go out and spend... Tens of thousands of dollars for a once in a generation storm. On what? Once in a generation. And tens of thousands of what? Do like if you went and bought like a generator system and like for your house and stuff like that. And to, oh, yeah. yeah. Doesn't cost that much. You go with those home generators. Yeah, they're like eight grand. Okay, but that's not tens of thousands of dollars. Okay, there's eight grand of it, but then now creating like water water filtration systems, so you could have water because that was a problem here. So you have like so storage your, tanks. Your argument and, is like, let's keep being the government's bitch. Yeah. Nice. No, that's great. No, not be like the, just uh, be, be prepared like in a plan that is like but, yeah. But that's if the it, issue. It's like either <clears throat> to a lot of people. It's, oh well, I can't afford fifteen thousand dollars to do. Nobody's telling you to spend fifteen thousand. Yeah. You, there's a lot smaller things that you can buy right now that will still take care of you yeah. in case something was to happen. You know what I mean? That it will cost maybe a hundred bucks to put together. Yeah. Oh, so you're just, you're just thinking like those, those home systems, like they're designed to run your entire house for like two. Oh, hundred percent. So, yeah. And that would be ideal if you can afford something like yeah. that. But, but I mean, you could get like a little propane heat, not a propane heater. Cause that kicks off fuel. Um, but you could have a little gas generator outside that could at least power your essentials so you get a basic heater you could have the refrigerator going you could have an electric cooktop uh little hot plate yeah like you could survive for a while oh 100 percent what you want to move into that 14 state sue administration oh okay yeah there we go uh 14 states sue biden administration oil over oil and gas lease moratorium so 14 states filed suit on wednesday against president joe biden's moratorium on new oil and gas leases on public lands and waters a coalition of 13 states led by louisiana filed one lawsuit on wednesday wyoming filed a separate lawsuit and this the quote is the moratorium might might make for a nice headline about fighting climate change but the real consequences of the actions are far more certain and far more uniform uniformly environmentally friendly the Wyoming lawsuit said Biden also directed the secretary of the internal department to begin a thorough review of existing permits for fossil fuel developments and ordered the federal government to conserve 30% of public lands and waters by 2030. The suit also came as the Biden administration prepares to unveil its proposal for overhauling the nation's infrastructure, which is expected to include an ambitious set of climate-related proposals. The Louisiana lawsuit argued that the present executive order would hurt communities depending on oil and gas drilling and drive up energy prices. Drilling on federal lands contributes to roughly a quarter of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions and generates billions of dollars in revenue. My thought was like, 
Have you seen the gas prices lately in the past <laughs> six months? Like they've really damn near doubled. And now you're saying, oh, we get a quarter of our generation is from federal land gas and providing all those billions of dollars and employing all of these communities. And now they're going to be like, nope, we're just going to cut this stuff off. So like your West and South Texas would be decimated by stuff like that. Your Louisiana, your small drilling towns would be decimated that depend on oil drilling offshores or like you would just decimate these parts of the economy and just put thousands and thousands of people out of work. My thing is like, this wasn't a surprise where we knew that a Biden administration would bring that on, right? We knew that that was their, their goal from the beginning is to tackle a gas, tackle oil, tackle all these things. So what could these places do to like start preparing for that? You know what I mean? Or is the administration moving, just trying to move way too fast to adapt something that the country's just not ready for yet? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you keep talking about all these things about unemployment and employment and helping all these things out. But it's like, well, you keep doing things that keep hurting employment, keeps hurting uh, businesses and, and especially in the oil industry and all that. I mean, you, you know, we've met a lot of people that worked in the oil industries. They're, they're not like the workers themselves is your a lot of them are kind of like your uneducated, no high school diplomas, stuff like that. Yeah, like they, they can make good money <clears throat> in that industry not having a high school diploma. Yeah, because they they're make, putting in a shit ton of work. Yeah, but, I mean, it's very, it's, it's not like the most rewarding work. I mean, they're covering oil. They're 16 hour days. I mean, they're long weeks, long hours yeah. at night, terrible shifts, but they get compensated well for that so, work. So the people that you're saying you want to help, you keep hurting more and more without providing solutions for them. Except for let's just how we can get them retrained and reeducated. Gonna be like they enjoy their lifestyle that they don't want to go sit and work at a in an office or something like that. It's like it doesn't no. Yeah, I think uh, those things. I mean, it's gonna be interesting to see how those things play out, especially for real estate. I mean, you got to look at it as a real estate investor. If you're investing in these markets where they're so heavily dependent on oil on these kind of productions, like start planning. Start planning ahead. Start thinking, like, how are the jobs, how's the job market going to be affected in that sector? You know what I mean? And that's that's what I like so like about Texas is that we're making a huge shift into uh, the tech space, you know, where because of California being the ridiculous state that it is, we're having a lot of the tech companies and everything move into Texas. So it's becoming more diverse as far as the job market goes. You know, yeah. Houston. I don't know. Houston might get hit harder. Because... No, no, they just brought Hewlett Packard there. That's not a small tech <clears throat> company. Right. Yeah. So, so they are being more diverse. Adapt. I mean, my worry is just with it. It's like, do they bring the politics with it? And I really think that it, it, it will just because you look at the nature and like the cycles of politics and economies. Like when you get something that brings that much money, you're going to create inequality for sure. Like yeah. you look at Silicon Valley, when they started globally bringing all that money into there and a lot of people started getting very wealthy, that drove up a lot of prices and then suppressed a lot of people. And that's where the politics come from. It's like tax the rich. Uh, I need to, I need support from the government because they can't work for these companies or don't have the skill set to work for them. And that creates those divisions. Yeah. So like it will happen eventually, but well, we'll see how long it, it goes. But I mean, to your point, an article I've had in here for a while. Mm is the uh, McConnell's comments about uh, Democrats do not have a mandate to completely transform the country. And that's a lot of things with this new administration proposing things where a lot of people are like, oh, it's all going to hell. They control the majority. They control everything. And it's like they don't have complete control. Like 
most people don't because they are talking about getting rid of the filibuster and that's where this stems from because without the filibuster they can't if as long as the majority votes for something they can get anything passed that doesn't require the budget reconciliation requirements like the uh tax plan or the last um stimulus package did so Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said on Wednesday that Democrats were not given a mandate by the American people to eliminate the filibuster to in order to completely transform this country. McConnell, during an appearance on the Falker Focus, said that some Democrats are preparing to steamroll the Senate into a majoritarian body, like the House of Representatives, by eliminating the filibuster because it is an inconvenience, their ability to push through progressive legislation. McConnell threatened on Tuesday to turn the Senate into a 100-car pileup and block even the most basic aspects of its function if Democrats get rid of the legislative filibuster. McConnell continued, I want our colleagues to imagine a world where every single task, every one of them, requires a physical quorum, which, by the way, the vice president does not count in de uh, determining a quorum. This chaos would not open up an express lane for liberal change. The Senate would be more like a hundred car pile up, nothing moving. And I was like, okay, a physical quorum. Like, what is that? I, like, I don't understand. When I Google, is it a quorum? The number of senators that must be present for Senate to do business. The Constitution requires a majority of senators, 51, for a quorum. Often fewer senators are actually present on the floor, but the Senate presumes that a quorum is present unless the contrary is shown by a roll call vote for or quorum call. Meaning, since there's 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, and the vice president does not count, 50 Republicans don't show up for work. And they're like, we're not there. Do a roll call and count 51 people. And there's not 51 people there. It will stop the function of the Senate and it will stop everything from that's why he's saying like a hundred car pileup, the basic function, nothing will get passed. It's like, he said, well, they still hold that card Whereas like, it doesn't want to go that route because like you literally just, the government just turns into a, more of a chaotic mess than it already is. And it's saying like, you eliminate that. We will go that route. Well, how, how does this relate to the, um when they were trying to, you were talking before about trying to get rid of the filib the filibuster. That's what we're saying because they're saying they're going to get rid of the filibuster. A lot of people are pushing <clears> to get rid of the filibuster yeah. because, it, like you mentioned, is because it's an inconvenience to the liberal change and how they want to transform the country. So if they get rid of the filibuster, fifty votes allows the uh, Senate to get anything passed. Mm. Where like the stuff they're talking about now with um, was the infrastructure, not infrastructure. Um, what bill are they working on right now? I can't think what it what it is, but the yeah, well, you can do that through reconciliation too, I believe. Um, but uh, dang it, I can't think of it. It has to do with spending. I don't know, whatever it is. But like, if it doesn't have to do with the federal budget, it requires sixty votes in order to pass. So you have to have some bipartisan um, function. Right, right. But now, when they say like these passing of like oh these uh, the fifteen dollar minimum wage, yeah, they want to force that. That doesn't count in budget reconciliation. So now, if they want to get that passed, they have to get sixty votes or eliminate the filibuster to where fifty votes and the vice president can break the tie. Right. But now they're basically threatening like if you eliminate our ability to block legislation like that, we'll stop. We'll the Senate will not function. You can pass as many bills as you want. You can do, propose as many things as you want, but the Senate will not show up to work. And you think that all Republicans will come together for something like that? I mean, if they've kind of shown that they, they will hold together. I mean, look at any bill they've recently passed, the last administration or this one, it was party line on everything yeah. that was any kind of importance to like the public headlines. 
So I think they would if they tried to force that and they tried to do these changes that really hurt a lot of their states. They'll just say, you know what? I mean, that we're not we're just not going to show up to work. That's definitely good to know. I mean, just and it's nothing against like just the like against uh, Democrats or anything like that. It's just there needs to be balance. Well, those powers are there in the government. And it is one of the things that it's good to see. But then now it's also knowing that they have that option. So when somebody says like, oh, the Republicans are just letting them do whatever, it's like they are obviously agreeing because those tools are there in their tool basket if they didn't. So understand when they say they pass a party line, they're agreeing to that party line because they're showing up to work. Yeah, they could actually if they hated it that much, they could just say, you know, what, we're not going to show up and vote on this stuff. So just know that by some support by them showing up is showing that well we could stop it if we really hated it that much but we're not going to do that because it would just take the government in a whole different direction so it's a nice little threat there that you know either we come together or this could get ugly kind of thing yeah and i was watching some of uh biden's address his first address to the nation yesterday uh and he talked about he threw out some stats and i wanted to look it up but i didn't get the chance of like how many times the filibuster's been used uh, he was like between like 1920 when it was founded to like 1980 or something like that. There was only like 30 filibusters yeah. or something like that. But in the last, I think he said from like 2000, what was it 2008 to 2018? It been used like 200 times. It's like it's being, it's like it's being abused. It's being abused. Like, of course. Well, obviously, it's like you look at the last three ministers, the this administration, the past two, and like the other side doesn't like the rules that are being passed, and they're trying to force things down each other's throats without doing any bipartisan. So, of course, yeah. there's going to be a filibuster to it. So, well, as long as there, there keeps being checks and balances. Uh, so, more good news for Texas is uh, for especially for the real estate market and everything is legislation backed by casino giant would allow casinos and sports gambling in Texas. So right now there's a proposal that will create special casino licenses for four destination resorts in uh, DFW, Houston, San Antonio, and Austin. So you have your major metros all have uh, are going to have the licenses. And it will establish these resorts slash casinos. Legislation would require amending the Texas Constitution, which currently bans most gaming in Texas. That is only possible with a two-third vote of lawmakers in both chambers. And then voter approval in November election. Man. So it's going to take a, a lot of votes to get that passed. Yeah, that's a very tall, tall. And that was one of the things I liked about the last legislature they did when they amended the Texas state constitution to not have an income tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, like to where it was like, it was just like a kind of a, don't bring your politics here kind of mentality. Like you will not bring an income tax here to raise taxes on people. You need to do it a different way yeah. because they were able to get two thirds majority and voter approval uh, across the tour. They start doing politics like to get two thirds majority. Like that's really tall task to do, especially if you have a division between an old guard, new guard, the way it used to be with new people coming in yeah. or like it would take a very long time to get super majorities of one party to, force out the other side and then still to have to get approval from the public. They change that. Yeah. And then you have, uh, for this plan, you have Las Vegas Sands, which is one of the biggest, uh, investors, owners of everything. Casino base, uh, founded by GOP mega donor, Sheldon Adelson has spent the, the past few months building a massive push at the Capitol 
spending millions of dollars to hire nearly six dozen lobbyists. So, <laughs> God. It's coming just, in full force there. Oh, they really want it. The bill uh fill, the bill filing deadline for the Benelli Benelio? Benio? Just move on. Yeah, legislative session. Uh which got underway in January is Friday. Biannual. Does Benio. Annual. I think it's supposed to be by well, one thing session. that I realized that was what it is. as we as we read so many articles, how many like spelling errors there are make it, and, and grammar. You, yeah, because like, you in your eyes when you're reading it, not speaking out loud, you just skim right through you yeah. know to talk about it. when I'm reading it out loud, I'm like, God, that sentence didn't make sense when you read it out loud. Yeah. We appreciate the work of the bill's sponsor and we are excited to engage in further discussion with elected leaders and community stakeholders on the possibilities for expanding Texas. Tourism offerings through destination resorts. Andy, about the Las Vegas Sands senior vice president said, the legislation calls for a land and development investment of at least $2 billion in DFW and Houston, and as well as $1 billion in San Antonio and Austin. The destination resort licenses will be considered class one license. The legislation would then create three class two licenses for limited, limited casino gaming at horse races horse, uh, horse race tracks in dallas houston and san antonio yeah and san antonio after that two class three licenses would be made available for similar limited casino gambling at greyhound tracks in corpus christi and harlandale so i mean they're trying to bring these resorts they're trying to bring gambling which you know we know is a big money maker for well, it's a big money maker for a lot of people. Yeah. So hey, hey, politician, I mean, state legislation. I mean, you look at that, it's like they bring and, and, and then it's kind of funny. You look at it like what a better time to propose this when you just went through an economic depression where you need money for state and local governments and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's like, hey, you want a new revenue source? Here's something you can make a new revenue source on. Just like the legalization of marijuana is another one. Like you look at Colorado, like the amount of money the state makes off of that is huge. Um, but I mean, I'm I'm for it to the sense that like I'm not a gambler by any means, but those resorts that those things are on that they're proposing are pretty sweet actual resorts. Like they're massive mega complexes of it's not just a few slot machines and stuff like that that you have in just like a gambling floor. Usually yeah. you have like entertainment aspect attached to those things that are well, it's a nice full cool. it's a full fledged resort. So I mean, a yeah. resort is not just casinos. I mean, they're going to have a lot of there's going to be entertaining entertainment and that's going to be also huge for the the people that well, live then here. The people that the businesses that make their business next to those resorts exactly because it's all based around entertainment and things to go do i mean you look at the success of the rim here in san antonio when i first moved here there wasn't a whole lot out there but yeah. now you got the andretti experience you got the eye flies you got the top golfs and like and you got the new bars entertainment the restaurants that are popping up around there that it's like it's a full-fledged entertainment district that's like, hey, looking for a night out, I don't just go watch a movie at the Palladium. I was like, no, I can go to the Palladium, watch a movie, then I can head over to Top Golf for some late-night uh, golfing or something like that. Or if you got kids, go do the gaming that has the adult aspect of the go-karts around it. So like that, it, it, well, I think it's a cool, a cool I mean, and so just to finish up this article, uh, you have Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has been far more pessimistic saying the last month that he has never been in favor of expanding gambling 
and the upper chamber is now is nowhere close to having the votes for it. But they did some polling and they say about 41% of uh, Texans support the expanding on gas. So long ways from two thirds. You you talk about, you know, how this makes sense and everything. But then we talk about, like always, the politics of all of these things, right? The politics of everything that's like, so especially for San Antonio, San Antonio got hit really hard because of the hospitality industry, right? We yeah. have a lot of conferences. We have a, a lot of tourism. We have, you know, a lot of things that are driven by hospitality. And that got so hurt when uh, well, COVID happened. One of the things I saw an article on that uh, I, I never put it in here, but they talked about like the recovery of that industry is very, got some, some facing some significant challenges, headwinds. Yeah. Or when like, people got fired from that industry and just like at no fault of their own lost their jobs in the snap of a finger. They're not going to go back to that job. They're, they're gone. or like, no, that was too risky. I don't want to be in that position again anymore. I'm going to move on and find a different job, get more training, more schooling. So I don't have to worry about being shut down because of a pandemic, um, kind of situation to where like, they're saying like, it's going to be very hard to fill those jobs because they're going to, there's going to be higher costs with it. Cause now to coax people back, to that industry, they're going to have to raise prices to pay those people to get them to come to work. So it is one of those things that like, or automate, huh? Or automate. I don't know how a mom pop restaurant automates, but, um, yeah. well, that's the, that's what the problem that we always talk about is that those are the businesses that get destroyed is the mom and pop restaurants, the mom and pop shops that can't implement the things that the big companies can. Yeah. So you keep having more and more big corporate chains and you keep losing that hometown feel and vibe because you keep pushing the small businesses out of business. Yeah. And for so it, it, it just makes no sense. And to talk about more st- stupid decisions, let's talk about uh, Florida. So Florida South Beach implements a curfew. It's old news. During spring break. This happened last week. Yeah. Like early last week. Still last week. But... They implement this curfew in, in Florida, and you have South Beach has a different mayor than Miami has. So it's like... South Beach is its own town. Yeah, it's its own politics and all that. I don't know. I thought South Beach was just South Beach part of Miami. Like, oh, kind of like saying, either. I don't know, like the, the river walk. You know what I mean? It's still San Antonio. Like, I didn't think that it was its own thing. Yeah. But they implemented a curfew, and they announced it literally the day before. So you already had a shit ton of people that were there for spring break, caught themselves outside of the city, and they shut down the highways. So they couldn't even get back into South Beach because of these curfews that they implemented from one day to the next. Shut the the roads down? They shut down the highways. So the APM curfew in South Beach Entertainment District uh, and the 10 p.m. shutdown of the eastbound lanes of the MacArthur, Julia, Tuttle, and Venetian uh, causeways will remain in effect all the way until like uh, April 14th, I think they said. So you have residents, hotel guests, and local business employees are exempt from causeway closures. But you have residents that says, uh, what are you doing? Residents cannot get home to their children and families. This is unacceptable, poorly planned, and dangerous situation. We have been sitting in the causeway for two hours, not moving. What is the point of this? Why even let us on the causeway to begin with? So there were people that were stuck literally 
in the highway until the next morning that it just wasn't budging. Like that's, that's talk terrible. about and, and during during spring break, you understand? And they talk about all you know all the shit that they talk about. Like uh, <clears throat> you have uh, the interim city manager, city manager who imposed the spring break measures Saturday needed commission support to extend them for more than seventy two hours prior allowed in city code. He said the measure will seek to contain the overwhelming crowd of visitors, and the potential for violence, disruption, and damage to property. <laughs> yeah, let's shut people down to where they can't get their families and kids and stuff, and that, that, that'll stop people from being violent and angry and causing damage. Plus, this is not something that you said, hey, guys, back in February, January, come spring break, we're shutting down. No, they did this that weekend. People were already there. Yeah. So They didn't what, anticipate the crowd. It's like, yeah, you've kept everyone cooped up, and then you have the one state that's like, has great beaches and is open and known for its party scene. Known what for the spring hell break is going to happen. Yeah, uh, they're known for spring break. They're known for all that. So what's funny is like they close down the streets and the people. They're like, "Fuck you!" They still went out. There are thousands of people. Oh on the yeah, street. I saw the, yeah. Like I, like curfews at eight p.m. and like yeah. by nine p.m. There's still thousands of people like in the middle of the streets. And like we're not doing. It. They wound up having to shoot pepper balls into the yeah. crowds to get them to disperse. And then you had uh, the police that were going in there with their four wheelers and everything, trying to disperse. They would disperse and then form again right behind them or in another street. But I was like, how poorly planned and executed. It, like it's half fast, half brain. At this point, oh. We don't want the spread. We don't want the spread of COVID. I mean, you saw the crowds, thousands of people. Not one person was wearing a mask. Yeah. I mean, guys, come on. I'm not yeah. saying you shouldn't have put a curfew or anything like, but you got to do this in a more planned way. Like, you can't just say, oh, hey, tomorrow we're going to shut down Miami. Yeah. Really? Well, especially like shutting down the roads. <laughs> They were like, people can't get back into the town after that time. They didn't like- want, yeah, they didn't want people in the, uh, at nighttime. Yeah. They want them in the in the city in the downtown yeah. It's like or at least area. like hey checkpoint. Um, you gotta have a driver's license that says you live here. Yeah, like just like they do at the border. Like, what's your business? Well, here? supposedly they say they did, but how are you filtering that when the whole highway is shut down? Well, it's also yeah. There's so many people trying to get into that town. It's like oh, there's there isn't a one. lane open uh, for yeah, people. Like, yeah, there's like nine people here that aren't don't belong here. How do you run them back around to go the other way when exactly. you got? Yeah. So, I mean, but you go back to just poor planning, poor policy, and then how this affects the businesses. I mean, you talk about like businesses still trying to recover. Spring break, one of the biggest times for well, tourism like people to year, come. The, and it's uh, like, oh, you're shut or down. Or San Antonio where they keep they pushed off Fiesta. Yeah. Or they canceled it for 2020 and they moved and Fiesta to like end of the year. Yeah. Or I think they moved it to like June or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, so far, but they still canceled like the parades. They, they're doing, I don't know what it is, but they're, they said that they're going to look at it again in June. Yeah. So it's not official that it's even coming back. So I do have one article that I think is good news uh, for San Antonio or business owners um, and small businesses like City Hall dealt setback in legal fight over paid sick leave. So something mm. for those that uh, don't know, I think it was 2018. The uh, San Antonio City Council approved the forcing businesses to provide paid sick leave to their employees, not by choice, but by force saying, if you employ more than five people, you have to provide 
paid sick leave or be fined or have licenses revoked or anything like that. So it was no longer a benefit to Coke's employees to you. They were saying, nope, that we're going to take it into our hands. We're going to force you to, at your expense, pay people to not come to work so many days a week. And uh, immediately, business coalitions came together and sued over that, and they basically got a moratorium put against it. And it's been kind of stuck up in legal battles ever since. And now they've been dealt like a kind of a, not a final blow, but one head away from just being driven the nail in the coffin. The Fourth Court of Appeals in San Antonio on Wednesday affirmed a temporary injunction preventing the Alamo City from implementing a mandatory paid sick leave ordinance. And we are disappointed that the appeals court agreed with the trial court. City attorney Andy Segovia said, we will be reviewing our legal options going forward and monitoring any state and federal legislation that would protect workers in San Antonio, protect workers in San Antonio. That was their, their side. San Antonio lawyer, lawyer Kelly Cubetta said the latest court decision is a big win for the businesses. Any attempt by the city of San Antonio in the future to impose a similar type of mandatory employment paid benefit will also be deemed unconstitutional, she said. Still, the city could appeal to the Texas Supreme Court, which in June 2020 let stand a 2018 lower court ruling that a similar ordinance in Austin, so they've already tried this once, and got it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court stood by the lower court's ruling in Austin that it was uncons- a similar ordinance was unconstitutional. The move did not put an end to the long-running legal debate, but they, agree- they basically said, like, hey, we're going to... St- stick with these lower court decisions. The city of San Antonio approved the ordinance in August, 2018. It was originally slated to take effect in August 1st, 2019. So we're almost, we're three years past, almost three years past when they passed it and two years past when they said it's going to be implemented and it's been held up in courts this entire time. And now has made it all the way up to the appellate courts where they agree with the injunctions that are being put in place. It's like, that's a good win for people. Cause I think it's terrible when, politicians try to come together and force businesses to do things. It's no longer like we're talking about. It's no longer a benefit. It's just like, no, you're forced to do that where every business that has more than few people have to have paid sick leave. And you kill uh, competitiveness as well, right? Because it's like, if you're a business that maybe you, the way you function, you can provide it. Now it becomes you a more favorable business for people to want to work for. Yeah. But now if it's just standard practice and the biggest issue with the paid sick leave with all these things, it's like, it's not that businesses like right now we have a, a few people that like they're, we have VAs that are, they're in the Philippines and then you have a uh, good Friday coming and all that. And they ask like they, they're Catholic. They're like, can we take this time off? Right. Can we take the time off? Will it be paid? So it's like, I like that that's up to the business to decide where it's like, look, I want to employ you. I want to do all this, but it's also, if I can't pay you for you to not work, you understand I should have the right to, and then you should have the right to decide, do you want to stay home or do you want to go to work and make that money? You understand? Yes, we are going to pay them to take uh, Friday off, but I told them, I was like, because they wanted Thursday and Friday off. And paid. I was like, look, I'll meet you halfway. I want you to, I'll pay you Thursday, but I want you to work because I need you to work and I'll pay you and you can take off Friday. You understand? Like we try to give and take with, uh, with our VAs and we try to take care of our employees. Yeah. We try to take care of them. We try to give them benefits as much as we can. We would love to give healthcare, but when you look at healthcare, it's like, well, it's a a benefit. It's like, it's like, I can't afford it. 
And it's like another it's employee. Not like you and I are driving around in the brand new Ford Raptors or anything like that. That we're just sucking all the cool. money. It's like you take money away from me to unproduct because that's exactly what that would be. Paid sick leave, unproductive drain on your 100%. in cash flow, and especially down to like if you had like five employees, like you're not killing it with five employees yeah. by any means. And now you have to for all five of them provide them like I think it was like four like two weeks or like a week's worth of paid like forty hours a week at. $15 an hour times five employees. Like there's, there's thousands of dollars that go to your yeah. bottom line that you can't now reinvest into your business to provide a better working environment and growth and better benefits in the long-term future. Those, those are the things that, you know, I, I always, ever since I, uh, I've always heard when people go to work and everything, uh, they have paid sick leave, they have, uh, you know, 401ks, they have healthcare, they have all that. And I've always thought about it. I'm like, Man, it's going to be great when we can offer that because to me, I think that's a great advantage to a business owner to be able to offer benefits that can bring you the best employees, the best workers to your company. So it's an incentive to me as a business owner to be able to get to that point as quickly as I can mm -hmm. so I can bring the best people. Yeah. But now if you're making it mandatory, one, you're probably going to keep, again, putting out of business the small businesses that can't afford it. Or, or the small businesses their, like, I have four employees. I can't afford to hire the fifth one because not only do I have to cover their payroll, but now I now have to be able to do all of the paid sick leave on top of that. So it's not yeah. just forty, fifty thousand dollars for that employee. Nope. It's now I gotta be able to cover eighty, ninety thousand yeah. dollars because I'm gonna lose all that paid sick leave potentially that I gotta be able to cover. Well, and, the, and then it's also that premise and one thing that we're seeing now as we're hiring is that a lot of people they're like, Well, if you're hiring, it's because you're making a lot of money. Not necessarily. There's a lot of times you're hiring because there's the growth potential. It's but also that thing we talk about. It's like if you had the money every time you wanted to do an expansion, like things would be so much easier. But that's 100%. not how business no. expand. Like they take risks. They invest. They run a negative cash flow taking a bet that I can make that person perform. We can perform better to where I can cover their salary and have the growth back. But exactly. that first six months. I'm not, I got to adjust to that. I got to figure it out. Like, especially as you're starting, you don't have those systems and processes and the know-how and knowledge and mindset to grow those things. And that's also assuming that that employee works out right yeah, away. Yeah, it works out. I mean, <laughs> how many times you hire somebody and then, you know, a few weeks later, you end up having a fire and hire somebody else. Now, the amount of time that like, it takes that to work. bring that person in, to train them, to get them going. During that time, you're essentially losing money because they're not producing. You're training them. You're working through all this. You're still putting in more work. You're not doing the work that you used to because now you got to do their work as well until they get it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much lost revenue there for the business owner. Yet, what you're saying is like, well, let's just keep hammering you. Yeah. You understand where if if you wanted to do something like that. I think, it, again, going back to trying to think things through, there should be some form of uh, threshold that needs to be met and not just an employee count. Because having more employees does not mean that you have more money. Yeah, and you that's what this like, blew my mind. It's like, okay, if you are you have 400 employees and you're traded publicly here or something like that, it's like you have the ability to adapt some, you have a wide, vast range of ability to take revenue and reallocate it towards other things. When you get different, you have better benefits as far as compensation packages. Yeah. You have like bigger discounts. Exactly. It makes but sense. But it's like down to like five or seven or 10 employees, yeah. whatever it is, like that's not a lot of people, especially like if you're a rest restaurant and now they're trying to make them classified as employees yeah. to like get the, to get away from like the minimum, the wage requirements for those and on tips. It's like, dude, you would just decimate so many small businesses that it's like, 
and employees, your owner's probably not like really killing it driving around. There's, there's I'm sure there are some, and but yeah. they try to focus on those people. But I think it's more of a like 90, 10. There might be 10% that are really killing it off of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 employees. But I think the majority of them are not well, because it's not easy to you, do. You got to start getting creative. You got to start. This is one thing that I, I told Brian when I lived in Argentina and Spain that they have these kind of laws, you know, they're more of that socialism, borderline communism kind of politics. And like people get creative and they start figuring out illegal ways to avoid those things. Mm-hmm. Right. So you start forcing businesses to do illegal activities just so they can stay in business. Yeah. Because trust me, I was there. They weren't making a killing. All right. They weren't driving brand new vehicles. They were just surviving and they were doing so many illegal things because even if you say, oh, well, I just I'll hire these uh, the, these people as subcontractors or something like that. No, the IRS can tell the IRS can tell if you if they have like set tasks and things like things like that showing up, they know that they're an employee and they're going to force you to make the change. You understand? So it's like you got to get to a point where it's like, well, maybe these people got to be off the books. Maybe we got to figure out a different way of doing this. You know what I mean? Because it's like either that or you just go out of business. So I, I think, you know, going back to all, what we say, you know, government is extremely inefficient and they need to try to at least sit down for a little bit and try to think through the process. Yeah. And a like little really more. figure out like what is the impact on people like you're trying to help. And it's just like you, that. That's the thing that, like, about government. We've talked about it. When they get in the mess, they usually don't understand something, and they overstep and have consequences to people. That, like, dude, that was a completely beneficial way of doing business to the economy, to people's livelihoods. But yeah. because you didn't understand it, you didn't take the time to understand it. You're too busy. You made something obsolete that was beneficial. Well, and it's also the same shit that we talk about. That you know, one thing goes wrong, and they make the one case. The the rule. I say it's across the board. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, no, that's the exception. Shouldn't be the rule. Like that was just one thing that happened. Yeah. You know, and that's what it is. So as well, as we're getting close to the two hour mark, we haven't talked to our boy uh, Elon Musk lately. What? And did you see his new title? Title heard about his title, like CEO, CFO, no. Chief Financial Officer, and stuff like that. In a filing, SEC filing, mind you, this month, Elon Musk gave himself a new title, Techno King of Tesla. In the same <laughs> filing, he dubbed the company CFO, Zach Kirkhorn, Master of Coin. Like, He's just having fun. Oh, yeah. So, and I, I heard that. I just started laughing. I was like, because you can change the name for whatever you want. And it's like, where do these things come from? Like, how do these people like come up with these names? Everyone's like, I want to be CEO. And he's just like, you know what? I'm the techno king. Uh, like, my, my CFO now, like, that's my master of coin. And I just thought that was funny. He said, be that you can be used, but you can be sure of one thing. Musk didn't run this one past HR. Can you imagine? And, and for sure, some pinstriped suit buttoned down bureaucrat at the SEC headquarters on F Street in D.C. is still running around trying to see where those titles fit in. Rebellious? Free wealth? Absolutely. What else do you expect from Elon Musk? Certainly not compliance, predictability, or conformity that would carry the same likelihood as sending a rocket into space that would launch 11 satellites and then come back to Earth driving in reverse and landing backwards on solid ground from Earth uh, or here on Mother Earth. Oh, wait. Musk did that, didn't he? No one ever did that before. Not NASA, (laughs) not Boeing, not Russia. No one. Elon Musk 
techno king of Tesla did. And I just thought that was just so funny. I was that's like, hilarious. oh my God, that's so funny. And then I saw somebody try to flip that into cancel culture. I was like, really? You can't just have a good laugh at it because the word, oh, where course. does the word chief come from? Oh no. Yeah. Going back to Native Indian Americans. Native Americans that were like a chief yeah. of a tribe and stuff like that. And they tied it into like Washington Redskins. Why they got rid of it because of discriminatory towards. Well, they're trying to get rid of the term master bedroom. Master bedroom. They brought that in. It's like, well, it's not master bedroom. It's a uh, uh, primary bedroom because that most people master insinuates that you own slaves. It's like, do, well, the, and then do the majority where, of where people does really the term find bedroom come? What if you don't want to put a bed in the in that room does it still count as a bedroom God, like but we you want to sleep week, there like, where does it what if stop? you put a hammock now is it the primary hammock room like come on people that's you know it's like it's a name it's a name like where it was originated but it's not why it was originated in the past is not what it means today yeah. i was like so just get the really the, the small minority of people that control the media that try to make headline news go run with this stuff people are bored and i was like man you ruined a really funny topic i was laughing at the yeah. start of it and there's like well, let's think about that. It's like, oh no! And like, chief executive officer. How can we get like, offended like, by this? Oh my god! How can like, we look at this and be appalled by what he did? Because we we cannot look at it for what it is. Let's be offended and let's raise a fuss about this. Oh, uh, but it, I, I just that's where like, techno, I, I, techno king and master of coin. And that's like, where I think we all need to make sure that we are standing up and voicing ourselves in objection to all this nonsense because if we keep staying quiet just because we don't want the confrontation it keeps getting worse and worse for everybody so i'm and by all means i am not saying that you should go out cursing people out or or nothing like that there's an educated way of saying stop you understand like just stop like with this whole nonsense of everything needs to be canceled because it triggers anybody and everybody like just stop Grow, grow a thicker skin, grow a backbone. Like, let, let's just kind of, you know, let, let those things between your legs drop a little bit and start owning what the hell is being said. Like, stop being so emotional about everything, you know, because it's getting to a point where now it's like you can't even speak your mind because you're going to offend people and it might affect your business negatively. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple other good things that just pointing topics of the from the Biden administration, from yesterday's goals. Uh, they, their first was a hundred million shots in the first hundred days. They reached that in like 53 days. And now they're setting a new goal to hit 200 million uh, shots in the first hundred days. And then he direct the States to make all adults eligible for the vaccine by May 1st. Mm. So it's kind of one of the things like they are taking hold of us. And like, it, there was an end in sight because now the new administration that is democratic, the worst, most of the media companies are, are now trying to push this thing past and push this thing through to where it's like things are going to start opening up mandates are going to start going away it's going to become old news it's not there anymore um i can now go into quick trips and not be forced to wear masks so i think that's cool got a lot of my business uh from that uh but uh that's uh good news to see yeah well yeah it seems like uh some form of normalcy is coming back into play so uh, it's definitely going to be good. I saw that New Braunfels tubing is uh, opening up and they're saying we're in full swing. Uh, they are going to be expecting social distancing. Uh, I'll be uh, curious to see yeah. how you enforce that. And I and I think it's just like everything. They're going to be just, saying they that. Throw it in the thing. We need. We require you to do it, but we know nobody's going. Now, to cover them that they're going to do it. One thing that I would say is that you need to stop being so stupid and if you're going to go tubing and people are not social distancing, you cannot get your feelings hurt. 
because you got to understand you're tubing on a river. Exactly. Like you cannot be so appalled by things that are very common sense. That's what's going to happen. Now, so, getting back to the point where it's like, if you don't want to go somewhere, don't go and don't, don't complain go? for other people. Like, if you're mad that people aren't wearing masks at restaurants or at gas stations, go somewhere else. 100%. Go, go to a store that requires people to do that. I'm going to go to Quick Trip where I don't have to. Yep. So, with that being said, uh, Roddy826 says, my first time listening in. Great conversation, guys. Well, sir, I appreciate you listening in. And thank you all for attending listening live to coffee with the johns we will be back every friday 8 a.m to- for april 22nd that'll be on a thursday what except for april 22nd that one will be on a thursday i'm gone that friday oh okay yeah so wait, you'll know ahead of time but usually every friday 8 a.m uh we are live bringing you all the trends headlines and everything that impact you and your business and your investing so Stay tuned, hit subscribe, hit that bell notification so you get notified every time we go live. And with that being said, we will catch you all next week. Bye-bye.